you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're there in Luke chapter number uh, 22. And of course, we are making our way through the gospel of Luke, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, tonight, we find ourselves in Luke 22. And we're actually going to do something maybe a little different than we normally do. We're going to uh, finish up Luke 22 tonight, uh, verses 63 uh, through verse 71 there, the end of the chapter. And then we're actually going to cross into uh, chapter 23 and deal with uh, the first part of chapter 23. And the only reason for that is because we're kind of dealing with similar subjects and uh, we are dealing with some things that are that kind of go together. If you remember last time we were together, we saw here in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus being betrayed, and of course, he's now been arrested, and the events of the, the crucifixion are going to now uh, begin to unfold, the events that lead us to the crucifixion. Tonight, we're going to see the judgments of Jesus. On Sunday, we will see the crucifixion of Christ on Sunday morning. If you notice there in Luke 22 and verse 63, the Bible says, and the men that held Jesus, and of course, that phrase there, the men that held Jesus, is a reference to the fact that Jesus is being detained. Uh, he is being held uh, under arrest. And the Bible says, the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spake they against him. And of course, what we are seeing here is the actions that are going to take place upon uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as he's going to be tortured and he's going to be humiliated uh, as he makes his way uh, to the cross. In verse 66, the Bible says this, And as soon as it was day... And, of course, we know that Jesus was uh, arrested at night in the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw that the last uh, time that we were together. And we saw Peter's denial. And what we didn't see, what Luke did not go into a lot of detail, was the fact that that entire night that uh, Jesus had been arrested after the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, he was taken. We know this from other Gospels, and I'm not going to take the time to go there tonight because we've got enough to cover but we know that he was taken to Annas, who was the ex-high priest, the father-in-law of the current uh, high priest, Caiaphas. And he was taken to Annas first, and then he was taken to the house of the high priest, Caiaphas. And all night long, he'd been questioned uh, by the council of the Jews, by the Jews, the chief priests, all these people. And then the Bible tells us in verse 66, as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? And what I want you to notice and what we're going to see here tonight is the fact that Jesus is actually taken uh, on this day to three different uh, judgments. He's going to stand be before three different uh, uh, courts, if you will, and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to have his day in court, but it's, it's, it's three different courts that he stands before, and that is not including... Uh, the night before where he was questioned all night long by Anus and, uh, and Caiaphas. So we're going to look at these three different court uh, sessions, these di three different court uh, times in which the Lord Jesus Christ is, uh, is judged, and we're going to see the judgments of Christ. Now, um, if you're taking notes tonight, on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write down some notes. I want to give you just 
three different headings or three different kind of maybe titles for these different judgments that we see the Lord Jesus Christ in. And of course, I always encourage you to take notes and to follow along and of course, learn from the Word of God. The first heading or title, if you will, um, is found, we'll, we'll see it here in verses 66 through 71, and I've titled it this, you can write this down in your notes if you'd like, the, the unbelieving antagonist, the unbelieving antagonist, and what we see is Jesus before the council of the Jews, notice it there again in verse 66, and as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, art thou the Christ, the word Christ is a word that means Messiah. I won't take the time to run the verses for you. You can do that on your own if you'd like. But the word Christ simply means Messiah. And they asked him, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, he will not believe. Now I want you to notice that Jesus is brought before this council. He is before the council of the Jews. We saw there in verse 66, it's made up of the chief priests, the scribes, and they led him to this council. So though he's already been questioned all night long, now they're trying to uh, bring some legitimacy to this. So as soon as it is day, they bring him before the council and they begin to question him in a more uh, structured way. And it's the same thing. Of course, we're not going to spend a lot of time here with the council of the Jews. These unbelieving antagonists, uh, they already have an agenda. They already have something they're trying to accomplish. They are conspiring against the Lord Jesus Christ. And they ask him there in verse 67, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. So I want you to notice that Jesus identifies the fact that their problem was not a lack of information. Their problem was not, they're asking this question, Art thou the Christ? And you might read that and think, Is this some sort of like uh, evangelistic opportunity for the Lord Jesus Christ to declare himself? But they already know who Jesus is. They're not asking the question because they are lacking information. Their problem was not a lack of information, it was a lack of affirmation. They already knew who Christ was. They did not want to accept Christ. Uh, they did not want to believe on Christ. They did not want to acknowledge him or affirm him as the Christ. So they asked the question, are thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, if I tell you, ye will not believe. Verse 68. And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me. Notice these, this little phrase here. And if you get in, yourself into the story, and if you try to just ignore all the distractions and get yourself in, in, into the story. The, these these uh, four little words here should really uh, kind of break your heart. Uh, they do for me as I read it, verse 68. And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me. Notice these words, he says, nor let me go. And the idea is that Jesus is explaining to them, I'm not answering your questions because this is not an investigation. There is no investigation being done here where you are trying to get down to the bottom of the truth. You're trying to figure out what the truth is and bring justice. He says, you've already made up your mind. This is not a legitimate court investigation. This is a conspiracy. You've conspired against me. So uh, I'm not going to answer your questions because he says you will not believe. And he says, nor will you let me go. He says the problem is not their lack of information. It is a lack of confirmation, affirmation. They're not willing to acknowledge Jesus as Christ. And he says, you've already made up your mind. He says that you will not answer me nor let me go. He says, you've already made up your mind. Now, here's what's interesting. In verse uh, 67, we see the question, art thou the Christ? And the word Christ means Messiah. 
and it speaks to the position of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he was. The Messiah is the chosen one. The Messiah is the anointed one. The Messiah is the one who throughout the entire Old Testament has been prophesied that he would come uh, from God. And then in verse 69, the Bible says this, hereafter, so Jesus is not willing to answer their questions, but he is willing to say this. He says, hereafter shall ye, uh, shall the Son of Man. I want you to notice that little phrase there, the Son of Man. We've seen it in the Gospel of Luke. You've seen it in the Gospels if you've read the New Testament. That phrase, the Son of Man, is the self-term that Jesus used to refer himself more than any other term. There are two terms that are used in the Gospels for the Lord Jesus Christ. One is the Son of God. One is the Son of Man. And if you study those phrases out, you'll find that though the Son of God is the most well-known of the terms, the Son of Man is the most used term. It is the way that Jesus addressed himself more than any other time. And of course, the Son of God speaks to his deity. The Son of Man speaks to his humanity. It's just interesting to me because he says, Hereafter shall the Son of Man, referring to himself, sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou the Son of God? So I just want you to notice and just stop, because sometimes I think we read through the Bible and we don't stop to really consider what's being said and the, the statements and the uh, responses to those statements. And I just want you to see that even in these two verses, you can see their agenda. You can see the conspiracy because he says, hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Wouldn't the next just normal question be, well, who is the Son of Man? Who are you referring to? He says Son of Man, but they, they're not even listening. You ever talk to somebody like that? They're not even listening. They're just waiting for you to close your mouth because they've already got the next question they want to ask. They've already got the agenda that they've decided on. He says, Son of Man, and they say, Son of God. Verse 70, then said they all, Art thou the Son of God? He didn't say anything about being the Son of God. Now, he is the Son of God. But he didn't bring that up. He, He says, look, you're going to see this man. The Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. And they said, and, and, and the Bible says in verse 70, Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. Notice that little phrase, Ye say that I am. That's pretty much him saying, If you say so. Verse 71, And they said, What need we any further witnesses? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. And I want you to notice that they ask two questions. One in verse 67, art thou the Christ? Referring to the fact that he is the Messiah. And art thou the Son of God? Referring to his deity. And I, and, I, and I want to point that out because you need to understand that for the Jews, being the Messiah did not necessarily reflect on deity. In their minds, and even today for the Jews, they do not expect the Messiah to be the Son of God or to be God in the flesh. So these are two different terms that have to be dealt with. And they're asking the question, art thou the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the chosen one? Are you the one that God is going to send? And then they're also asking, art thou the son of God? Are you more than just a man? Are you deity? And like I said, we can spend all night on this, but if you've been with us through the gospel of Luke, we've already had this conversation with these same people. We've already had, we've seen these arguments back and forth between Jesus and the Jews. And here's all I want to point out regarding this little judgment scene here where we see Jesus taken before the unbelieving because they do not believe on him antagonists 
because they have already made up their minds. They want to fight Jesus. They are his adversaries. And what's interesting to me and the takeaway from this first court hearing on this day of three different court hearings that we'll see Jesus at, the first takeaway is this, that what they did not want to believe, the fact that Jesus was the Christ, the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, what they were trying to diminish, what they were trying to end, what they were trying to stop, what they were trying to, 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 to keep from gaining uh, any, any sort of momentum was the message that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the Son of God. That's why they're doing this. That's why they're going to crucify him. And exactly what they are trying to stop are with their actions, their conspiracy to crucify Christ is exactly what will be proven of Christ when he rises from the dead. What they do not understand is that what they are trying to stop is what they're actually going to catapult out of the first century into the 21st century and throughout the ages. The fact that Jesus, they're trying to prove that Jesus is not the Christ and he's not the Son of God and their actions are going to do the opposite. They will prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he truly is the Christ and that he is the Son of God. So we see that first court hearing. Jesus before the council of the Jews, these unbelieving antagonists, and they debate these two questions, art thou the Christ and art thou the Son of God? And those are really the motivations of the Jews in order to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, flip on over to Luke chapter 23 and look down at verse number 1. Luke 23 and verse 1. I'd like you to notice the second, the second court hearing the second judgment in which we see the Lord Jesus Christ. The first one, we saw him, we saw Jesus before the council of the Jews there in Luke 22, verses 66 through 71, and we titled that the unbelieving antagonist. The second time, we see him standing before a court. I'm using that term loosely, but he's being judged, and he's going to be sentenced. We see him standing before Pontius Pilate. And if you're taking notes and you'd like a title for this heading, you could title it this, The Unwilling Accomplice. For the Jews, we saw that they were the unbelieving antagonists, Luke 22, verses 66 through 71. For Pontius Pilate, we see in Luke 23, verses 1 through 7, that he is the unwilling accomplice. I want you to notice what the Bible says here in Luke 23, and verse 1. The Bible says, And the whole multitude of them arose... And led him unto Pilate. So they had their day in court. And, and you've got to understand the reasons for this. Of course, the, when Jesus stood before the council of the Jews, that was done before the society and the culture of the Jewish people. But these people, the Jews, are under the authority of the Roman Empire. So now they must go from their court and take it into the Roman court which is why the Bible tells us they have now led Jesus unto Pontius Pilate, Luke 23, verse 1, and the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate, verse 2, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nations and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. And again, you see the conspiracy here because when dealing with the Jews, they brought up the accusations that the Jews would have cared about. 
They're asking, art thou the Christ? Art thou the Son of God? When they bring him to Pontius Pilate, they don't bring him to Pilate and say, this guy's saying he's the Christ. This guy's saying he's the Son of God. They don't bring that accusation. What they say to Pontius Pilate is, we found this fellow perverting the nations and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. Now, first of all, that is a complete lie. Jesus actually is famously quoted as saying, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. And, and we saw that even in Luke uh, chapter 20. But they are trying to get a reaction from Pontius Pilate. So they come to him and they say, we found this fellow perverting the nations and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. Notice the last part of verse 2, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Here now we see a third title. So in Luke 22, we saw the question, art thou the Christ? We saw the question, art thou the Son of God? Now here in Luke 23, there's another question that will be asked, and it is, art thou the king of the Jews? Look at verse 3. And Pilate asked him, saying, art thou the king of the Jews? And the question that I have for these people is, well, which one is it? I mean, when you get arrested and you get summoned before a court, aren't you supposed to be clearly told what you're being charged for? He shows up to, to one court day, and they're asking him about, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Then he gets transferred to another. Now the questions are about, uh, art thou the king? And, and which one is it? Are you arresting him because he's a king? Or are you arresting him because he's the Son of God? Are you arresting him because he's the Messiah? And the, the question is this. They're arresting him because they hate God. And they don't really want truth here. They want to pressure Pilate into doing what they want. So they take him to Pilate and they say, we found this fellow perverting the nations and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the king. And Pilate asked him, saying, art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, I like how he answers, just like he answered the Jews, thou sayest it, <laughs> if you say so. And, and, and the idea is this, that you don't randomly ask, you don't just walk up to people and ask them, are you the king of the Jews? You don't just randomly, we're talking about first century Israel. You don't just randomly stop a guy on the street and say, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? These are the types of, th the types of things that if somebody is saying about you, that's a king. If somebody is saying about you, I think that might be the Messiah. If somebody is saying about you, I think... I think there might be more to this guy than meets the eye. I don't think he's a normal man like you and I. I think he might be the son of God. If somebody is saying that, Jesus is pointing out, that must be for a reason. Because I'm not telling you that, but you are keep asking me these questions. And the answer to the question is, if you say so, I'll say is it. Look at verse 4. Then said Pilate to the chief priest and to the people, I find no fault in this man. Pilate was no one's errand boy. Pilate was not an idiot. Pilate was the governor of Judea, the governor of what we would call the southern kingdom of Israel. He did not get to that position of leadership and power by being manipulated by being distracted, by not being able to perceive and see things. And what we learn 
about Pilate is that Pilate has the keen insight to know that Jesus is an innocent man. And we also know from the other gospel writings that, that Pilate is aware of the fact that the Jews are motivated by envy. Pilate is very aware of the fact that Jesus has done nothing wrong and that the only reason he's being put to death is because he's got bigger crowds, because he's got more love and he has more influence from the people than the scribes, than the Pharisees, than the chief priests, than the Sadducees. Pilate has the keen insight to know that Jesus is innocent and the Jews are motivated by envy. So he declares after just a quick conversation, a brief conversation with the Jews and with Jesus, he asks a question, he gets the answer, and he declares, rightly so, I find no fault in this man. The problem with Pilate is not exactly the same, but it is similar to the problem that the Jews have. It is not information. The problem that the Jews have was not that they were wondering, is this really the Christ, the Son of the living God? They understood that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and they wanted to disprove it. The problem with Pilate was not the information. He could see clearly what was happening here? The problem with a pilot was his character and integrity. He did not have a problem of information. He had a problem of integrity. And to his credit, he tries, he tries to take care of this issue without having to take a stand. Pilate has a keen insight to know that Jesus is innocent and the Jews are motivated by envy. And Pilate has enough subtlety and tact because remember he did not get to the place that he is by being simple he's got enough subtlety he's got enough discretion he's got enough tact to try to find a loophole to get himself out of this situation because Pilate does not want to put Jesus to death he does not want to uh, uh, put an innocent man to death so what does he do look at verse 5 and they were the more fierce, saying, He stirred up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, and I can see this because it, it, it's interesting in, in leadership, sometimes you find yourself in these situations where you're kind of talking through, and of course Pilate is being evil here, but uh, even in, in a righteous situation, sometimes you're talking through things with people and you're just kind of confused and you're not sure what is the right thing to do here. I'm not sure that I'm getting all the, all the facts. I'm not sure that I even understand the situation. And then the more you talk to people and the more you get out of them, then you, you hear something. You're like, aha, I can, I can latch on to that. Okay, I think I, I know where we can go now. And this is the situation with Pilate. He has this dilemma. He's got the Jews who are the ones that are his people that he governs over. They're very upset about this Jesus of Nazareth and they want him put to death. But Pilate does not want to put Jesus to death. Pilate being a Roman and the Roman culture is a culture 
for whatever it's worth, they've had some laws and some sense of justice. In fact, some of the laws that we have today in the United States of America, which are not mostly very good, but we've got some good laws, and they were even adopted from the Roman Empire. And as a Roman pilot would have had a disdain for simply putting someone to death who did not deserve it. So he's got this dilemma. He, he wants to please the Jews, but he does not want to crucify an innocent man. And as he hears them arguing, and he hears their shouting, verse 5, and they were the more fierce, saying, he stirred up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry. And this is the Jews. They're saying, he's stirring up the people in all Jewry, meaning all Judea. And, and they said, beginning from Galilee. Now remember, Galilee is in the northern kingdom of Israel. If you've got the kingdom of Israel, you've got the northern part, which is Galilee, and you've got the southern part, which is Judah, and, and the Jews, in their ravening and in their, uh, and, and their accusations, they say, yeah, he started up in Galilee, and he's came down to Judea, and he's riled up all the people here in, in Judea, verse 6, and when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean, and as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at the time. So we got Pilate here, who's a pretty smart guy, has no character, has no integrity, has no backbone. But he sees a loophole. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, wait, what'd you say? Oh, well, he started in Galilee. He, he's from Galilee. Oh, well, if he's from Galilee, then maybe I should send him up to Herod. That's Herod's territory. That's Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod happens to be in town. Verse 7, and as soon as they knew that he belonged into Herod's jurisdiction, he sent to him Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at the time. Now we know, and you know the story, that Pilate will eventually sentence Jesus to death. But he is an unwilling accomplice. He doesn't want to do it. Here's the takeaway from our friend Pilate. It is this, that power and authority, talent and ability, intelligence, resources, without moral fortitude, are useless. You, you, you say, I'm, I'm pretty smart. Well, I'm glad you're smart, but make sure you're honest too. Well, I, I, I've got a lot of talent. Well, I'm glad you're talented, but make sure you're not deceptive. Uh, if you knew the, the things that I, the power and the resource, the authority that I have, well, praise the Lord. Pilate, was, he wasn't a, a smart, he, he wasn't a dumb guy. He was a smart guy. He got to a place of position for a reason. He knew how to talk to people. He knew how to deal with people. He knew how to get out of making decisions that would make him unpopular. Pilate had a lot going for him. Well, what Pilate did not have going for him was that he could not look a man in the eye and tell the truth and say, no, I'm not going to do this. The only reason you brought this man is because you're envious and you're petty and you're evil. I'm not going to put him. That's what Pilate should have done. So what we learn from Pilate is that power and authority without moral fortitude is nothing. Which is why I don't get as excited as some of you do about the politicians. <laughs> oh, well, they're smart. Yeah, but they're crooked. Oh, well, they got all this talent. But they have no integrity. 
So Pilate uses a loophole. He bypasses the hard job of a leader, which is sometimes to say no. No. I'm not going to crucify him. No. I'm not going to cave into you. No. I'm not going to cave into your pressure. You're wrong. We're not going to do this. I'm going to let him go. You're going to let him go. That's what Pilate should have done. But instead, he finds a way to kick the can down the road. He finds a way to bypass true judgment. And he sends Jesus on his way to his third court hearing in one day. Notice it there in verse 8. I said number one, we saw in Luke 22, verses 6 or 71, we saw the unbelieving antagonist, Jesus, before the council of the Jews. And then in Luke 23, verses 1 through 7, we saw the unwilling accomplice, Jesus before Pontius Pilate. In verses 8 through 12, we see the unconvinced agitator, Jesus before Herod the Tetrarch. I want you to notice that Herod was an interesting character, and I don't have time to go into the entire issue with Herod, but let me just say this. He's known as Herod. He's known in many different ways, King Herod, Herod Antipas, and Herod the Tetrarch. The word Tetrarch means one of four or of a fourth part, kind of the same word where we get the name for the game Tetris because that's the only way to connect it for some of you. And the idea is that the Roman Empire was obviously the world empire at this time, and it was the empire that ruled the world. But the Roman Empire allowed different nations who were tributaries to exist underneath the umbrella of the Roman Empire. Of course, they all answered to Caesar, and they all paid tribute to Caesar. And the nation of Israel in that area had been divided into four different sections. And two of the sections were the southern kingdom of Israel and the northern kingdom of of Israel, otherwise known as Judea and Galilee. Pontius Pilate was the governor who was a Roman. He had been uh, uh, given the commission to be the governor over the southern kingdom of Israel. Herod would have been more like a local king, not a Jew, but a king in that area who was given authority over the northern kingdom of Israel, and he is, though a king, quote-unquote, he's not really a king because he's loyal to Caesar, he pays tribute to Caesar, and he uh, has to follow the commands of Caesar. Herod, if you remember from our study in the Gospel of Luke, is interested in Christianity. Look at Luke 23 and verse 8. And when Herod saw Jesus, because remember, they took him from the council of Jews to Pontius Pilate, Then they take him from Pontius Pilate to Herod. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad. The Bible says he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season. Jesus is somewhat of a celebrity at this point. And Herod, who was the leader, the king of Galilee, the northern kingdom of Israel, where Jesus had done most of his ministry and most of his miracles, would have, of course, become familiar with the ministry of Christ. And though he never actually met him or seen him, he was, the Bible tells us, desirous to see him uh, of a long season because he had heard many things of him and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Herod is approaching Jesus as 
a show. He's heard of these miracles and he's hoping he can see one. He's exceeding glad because he was desirous to see Jesus. So we see that Jesus is taken to Herod, and Herod has an interest in Christianity. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but let's spend a little bit of time on it because Herod is a character that came up several times already in the Gospels. Let's look at it through the Gospel of Luke. Go back to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Herod this, already knows who Jesus is. He's not met him yet. He's meeting him now. But when Herod first heard of Jesus, he was both confused and intrigued. You remember that? Luke 9, verse 7. Now Herod, the tetrarch, heard of all that was done by him, referring to Jesus, and he was perplexed. The word perplexed means he was confused. Why was he confused? Because that it was said of him that John was risen from the dead. Some people were saying about Jesus that he was John risen from the dead. If you remember, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they gave all sorts of different names that people thought Jesus was. Where he was a, one of the prophets and he was Elijah. And one of the names, one of the rumors was that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now this perplexed Herod because of the fact, verse 8, and of some that Elias had appeared and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again, verse 9, and Herod said, John have I beheaded. <laughs> but who is this? of whom I hear such things, and desired to see him. Herod was both confused and intrigued when he heard about Jesus because of the fact that some said that Jesus was John risen from the dead, and Herod was intrigued because of the fact that John had been beheaded by Herod. Look at Luke chapter 3 and verse 19. Luke chapter 3 and verse 19. Why is it that Herod beheaded John? Luke 3.19, but Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved. See that word reproved? That's a negative word. Being reproved, meaning he was told, hey, you're doing something wrong. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him. Being reproved by who? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the type of preacher that not only preached about the culture and society, but he preached against the current political leaders, and Herod was one of them. What did John preach? For Herodias, his brother's uh, Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done. Herod had done evil. He was a wicked man. And he had also stolen his brother Philip's wife. And John the Baptist called him out on this. This is why I think it's funny when people will, will criticize and say, why do you guys got to preach about politics? Why do you got to preach about what's going on in the news? Why, why can't you just stick to the gospel? Why do you have to preach about current events and politicians and what they're doing wrong? Why can't you just be like uh, in the New Testament? I think to myself, have you ever read the New Testament? They crucified John. They, 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 they cut off John's head because he was preaching against the political leader of his time for committing adultery. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias' his brother Philip's wife and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. Now, again, to Herod's credit, he initially throws John into prison. Look at, um, and, and I won't take the time to go. Let, let's go to Luke 13. But of course, through different events, he is pressured to cut off John's head and he does it. At the request of a woman. 
In Luke 13 and verse 31, we see the next appearance of Herod in the Gospel of Luke. And it is this, that when Jesus finds out that Herod put John to death, he doesn't have much of a liking for Herod. In fact, in Luke 13 and verse 31, the Bible says this, The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, These are the Pharisees coming to Jesus, and they're saying to Jesus, Get thee out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. Now, the Pharisees themselves want to kill Jesus, so it's funny that they're warning Jesus that Herod wants to kill him. Whether this is true or not, we don't know. I presume that Herod did want to kill him, and the Pharisees were simply warning Jesus because they wanted to get rid of him. But they come to Jesus, and they tell Jesus, get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. John has already been killed by Herod. Now they're trying to scare Jesus into leaving and saying, look, John's already been put to death, and Herod said he's going to kill you. Look at verse 32. And he, Jesus, said unto them, the Pharisees, about Herod, who their warning is going to kill Jesus. And notice his response. He says, go ye and tell that fox. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I imagine it's not, it's not a compliment. He says, go ye and tell that fox, because remember, they said, hey, get out of here. Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, go ye and tell that fox, behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures. Today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perisheth out of Jerusalem. They come to Jesus and they say, hey, get out of town. Herod's going to kill you. And Jesus says, you tell that fox, I'll be here today. I'll be here tomorrow. I'll be here the next day. It'll be, uh, it, it'll be services as usual. And Jesus was not intimidated by Herod. Jesus was not going to cower down to Herod. Jesus said, I will be here until I'm ready to leave. So we see that Jesus was not intimidated by Herod. And now he's taken before Herod for judgment. Look at Luke 23, verse 9. Then he, this is of course Herod, questioned with him in many words. But he, Jesus, answered him nothing. Now this is slightly different than Jesus before the council of the Jews, the unbelieving antagonist, and before the Pontius Pilate, the unwilling accomplice. Though he didn't say much to them, he did say some things. He said, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father. They asked him, art thou the Christ? Art thou the Son of God? And he says, if you say so. Pilate asked him, art thou the King of the Jews? And he said, if you say so. But when he gets to Herod, he says nothing. But he answered him nothing. Verse 10, and the chief priests of the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, notice what the Bible says, set him at naught. So it seems like Herod loses his patience, and when he's not getting the respect and he's not getting the feedback from Jesus that he expected, remember he was first excited that Jesus was coming, he was hoping that he could talk to him, maybe get Jesus to perform a miracle, this could have been a good thing for Jesus, I mean all Jesus had to do was come in, shake a few hands, take a few pictures, do a few miracles, and he could have gone on his way, but instead Jesus refuses to talk to Herod. 
And as a result, Herod, tell, the Bible tells us, verse 11, and Herod with his men of war set him at naught. That phrase, set him at naught, means to treat as unimportant, to treat as, as something that is of little value. Set him at naught, notice, and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. We see the character of Herod. No better than the men of war we saw in the previous chapter. He begins to mock Jesus and to beat Jesus. He arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together. For before, they were at enmity between themselves. So we see Jesus here before this unconvinced agitator. Because Herod had his chance. Herod could not say, I don't know who Jesus is. I've never heard about Jesus. I've never heard. Herod was not only very familiar with Jesus, he was very familiar with the predecessor of Jesus, John the Baptist. In fact, he knew about John the Baptist and John Baptist's ministry so well, and he was so acquainted with the preaching of John that he put him to death. And Herod had already had his chance. Herod had already heard the truth. Herod had an opportunity to get saved and to get right under John. He'd already heard of Jesus. He'd already heard people say, hey, this might be John resurrected again. Herod had had time and time and time to get right, time to believe. And what we learn and the takeaway from this court hearing is that Jesus believed what we believe. Maybe I should say that differently. We believe what Jesus believed. What the Bible already has taught. That there are some people who are given opportunities, and when they reject those opportunities, eventually those people lose the opportunity and become what we call a reprobate. Apparently, Herod was one of these reprobates because what we learn from Jesus and what we learn in this, look, he's talking to the Jews. And look, we, we could spend so much time on this and I'm not going to. One of these days, I'm going to preach a whole series just called The Enemies of Jesus. And we'll go through and just look at all the villains that Jesus dealt with. But if you study Jesus with the counsel of the Jews, if you study Jesus and we only looked at it from the Gospel of Luke, but if we went through all the, the, the Gospels and looked at it, Jesus had these conversations with them. I mean, he's even rebuking them, and, and they're saying, answers thou the high priest so, and, and Jesus is just, you know, it's interesting because Jesus talks back to the high priest, and they say to him, answerest thou the high priest so, and he just responds with a smart aleck response. Paul, in the book of Acts, has a similar situation where he mouths off to the high priest, not knowing that it was the high priest. They say to him, answerest thou the high priest so, and Paul apologizes. You say, well, which one was right? Well, they were both right. Because Paul, at that time, was under the authority of the high priest in, in, a, in a cultural sense, and therefore apologized for disrespecting the high priest. Jesus does not apologize for disrespecting the high priest, because Jesus is the high priest. Because Jesus, is, because Jesus outranked the chief priest. And the point that I'm making is that Jesus had this conversation back and forth with the 
uh, council of the Jews, the unbelieving antagonist. Jesus, if you look at the stories in the other Gospels, had this back and forth with Pilate. These long conversations where Pilate says, what is the truth? And asks these questions of Jesus. And Pilate's wife comes in and says, I had these dreams and you need to let this man go. These conversations and Jesus tells Pilate that, 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 that those that delivered him unto him have the greater sin. He tells Pilate that you have no power if it had not been given to you from heaven. And again, we could take the time to break all that down and learn from it. But the point that I'm making is this. Jesus talked extensively to the Jews. He talked extensively to Pilate. But when he gets to Herod, he says nothing. Herod is the only one that wants to talk to Jesus. He's the only one that wants to see a miracle from Jesus. But Jesus says nothing. What's the takeaway? Here's the takeaway. Some people are not worth talking to. There are some people say, well, you guys preach against the reprobates, the sodomites. Why don't you preach the gospel to everyone? Like Jesus. Or really? Like Jesus? Because there were some people Jesus didn't talk to. There are some people, Jesus, he said, oh, this is Herod. He's had his chance. Right. He's done. He's a reprobate. I have nothing to say to you. Yeah. And Herod proves how much of a reprobate he is by just instantly going from intrigue to mocking. Right. Excited to hurting. He arrays him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. On the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. Look at verse 13. We're we're, going to finish this up. We're we're just going to look at a a few more verses, and and we'll be done. We're looking at the judgments of Jesus. In Luke 22, 63 to 65, we saw the soldiers mocking him. In verses 66 through 71, we saw Jesus before the council of the Jews, the unbelieving antagonist. In verses 1 through 7 of Luke 23, We saw Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the unwilling accomplice. In Luke 23, verses 8 through 12, we saw Jesus before before Herod the Tetrarch, the unconvinced agitator. I want you to notice in verses 13 through 15, we'll just do this quickly. I'll just give this to you so you can get it for your notes, and then you can study it out later if you'd like. In verses 13 through 15, we see Jesus. This is now, if you're taking notes, we're in our conclusion. (laughs) We see Jesus, the sinless Savior. He goes back to Pilate a second time. Luke 23, 13, And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverted the people, and behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him, nor, uh, he says, no, nor yet Herod, for I send you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. Pilate is making this point. That look, you've examined him. I told you to deal with him. In another gospel, he told the Jews, you deal with him according to your law. They said, we can't put him to death. Pilate says, I haven't found any reason to put him to death. Herod hasn't found any reason to put him to death. You say, what is going on here? Why are these stories in the Bible? And I'm here to tell you something. Everything in the Bible is in there for a reason. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read this for you. This will kind of prep you for... Sunday night when we talk about the Passover and the Lord's Supper. But in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 3, the Bible says, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 12, the Passover was established where they were supposed to take a lamb. They were supposed to take the lamb on the tenth day of the first month, 
according to the house of the fathers, a lamb for an house. In verse 5, we're told, your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. Verse 6 says, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. So they chose the lamb on the 10th day. They kept it until the 14th day. And, who, and, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. What was the purpose of them choosing a lamb on the 10th day and keeping it until the 14th day? The purpose was for them to watch the lamb, to examine the lamb, to make sure that the lamb was without blemish. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus shows up onto the shores of Galilee in the New Testament and onto the shores of Judea in the New Testament, that John the Baptist looks at him coming afar off and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And what Jesus is doing, he is fulfilling the... Because Jesus is our Passover. He is the Passover lamb. And he is fulfilling the steps of the Passover. On the 10th day, the lamb was to be chosen. This is represented by Palm Sunday when Jesus enters into the city on a mule. And he is presented before the people. And now we have seen him over the next several days. He got arrested. He was examined by Annas. He was examined by Caiaphas. He was taken to the council of the Jews. He was taken to Pontius Pilate. He was taken to Herod. I mean, if, if, you, if they were, they were trying to figure out, can we take him somewhere where someone will find him guilty? And at the end of the whole thing, they said, this lamb is without spot. Amen. It's blameless. Amen. It's sinless. Amen. You say, what was the point of all these proceedings? What was the point of all these court hearings? It's so that it could be said without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus truly was the sinless Savior. Amen. Pilate says, I find no fault in him. But then I want you to notice, secondly, and we'll finish this up. In verses 16 to 25. In verses 13 through 15, we saw Jesus the sinless Savior. In verses 16 to 25, we see Jesus the substitutionary sacrifice. Look at verse 16. This is what Pilate says. Remember, he's a coward. I will therefore chastise him and release him. He says, I find no fault in him. I'll just chastise him and let him go. Verses 17, for of necessity, he must release one of them at the feast. And John were told that he had a custom that he should release unto one. He would release one of the prisoners on Passover. Which is what's happening right now. At, at this moment in, in our passage, verse 18. Pilate says, I'll just let him go. I, I have to let go a prisoner anyway. I'll just let him go. He hasn't done anything wrong. And we'll all go on our merry way. Verse 18. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man and release unto us Barabbas. Here we have another character enter the story. I won't take the time to go through the passages, but Barabbas was a murderer. He was a thief and an insurrector. He was in prison for reasons that would take him to the cross. The Bible tells us here in Luke 19, other gospels give us other details, but here in verse 19 we're told, for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate therefore willing to release Jesus spake again to them. But they cried saying, crucify him, crucify him. 
And he said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And, and the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate... You can put next to verse 24, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, you can put these words, Pilate caved in. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. You and I could look at this from a secular perspective and think to ourselves, what injustice that Jesus, who had been brought through an entire array of courts, they couldn't find anything to charge him with. They couldn't find anything he was guilty of. He's an innocent man. But these Jews said, no, 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 give us the murderer. No, 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 give us the insurrector. No, give us the, the guy that had been charged and sentenced and found guilty of sedition and murder and being a robber. Give us that guy. And you and I can look at it from the perspective of humanity and say this is injustice and it was an injustice. But I will submit to you tonight, and I think you probably have already seen it. This is actually just a beautiful illustration of what Jesus was doing, not only for Barabbas, but for all mankind. Amen. Allow me to read one verse to you, 1 Peter 3.18. You don't have to turn there. The Bible says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Amen. See, we see in the story of Barabbas, that the innocent took the punishment and the guilty went free. The just for the unjust. Three crosses and one of them we could assume was meant for Barabbas. But instead, Jesus would die on that cross. And we don't know for sure, but I, I've, I've got to wonder if Barabbas... It, 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 when, when, when the, the jailer comes and, and, and opens the door and says, you're free to go. And maybe, I don't know if it was back then like it is now. I've never been arrested, but some of you told me. <laughs> I don't know if they handed him his change and handed him his wallet and gave him kind of the things that he was arrested with. And he, and he comes out onto the street and he, and he sees all the commotion and he hears and he begins to ask and he's wondering what, what, what happened. I mean, I wouldn't ask too many questions if I was him. If they opened the door and they're saying, go, I'd go. But I wonder if he got out on the street and he began to hear about this Jesus of Nazareth. If Barabbas understood what you and I should understand, that he took my place, Amen. that he paid my debt. Amen. See, it's easy to look down on Barabbas, but the truth is this, that you and I are Barabbas. Amen. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. On Sunday morning, we will look at the crucifixion of Christ. And though 
it is very somber, we can rejoice in the fact that Jesus laid down his life for us. Not only was he the sinless Savior, but he was the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these passages of Scripture. And of course, it's very fitting that we would be considering these things as we get close to Easter. We will begin to have celebrations on the calendar that are meant to remind us about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if Barabbas understood it. I'd like to think he did. But I hope that every one of us here tonight understands it. That the just took the place of the unjust. He was our substitution for our sins. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to now live for you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We'll have Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song. Just want to remind you uh, that there is no PE.